Good morning and welcome to the first of our theme talks. I shall be introducing each one. But first, let's do a bit of business. Um, thank you for those who turned up last night to help put the chairs out, or if it was just those at the workshop, either way, thank you. I came at 10 to 9 to help, and it was all done. That's brilliant. Please, can we continue to do that each night? That's well, fabulous. And if <laughs> Preferably, Barbara. And anyone who's willing to lend a hand, do turn up, but just before 9, so that before we go down to Epilogue, we've got the seats ready here for the next morning. Equally, as we leave here today... Could a few folks just hang back and make sure we leave the chairs the way that Jim and John want them? So if you'll tell us at the end what you need, we'll try and do that for you. OK, well, thank you for that willingness already. That's fabulous. Um, looking ahead, let me just tell you that this afternoon there is... It's on the programme, but of course, uh, and you all know that, but I'll just mention it in case it's that you mind. Every day through the week at 4.30, there is your feedback session to respond to this theme talk. It's a chance to meet quietly with Rob and have a conversation about threats, questions, issues, implications. So for that reason, we don't include a question and answer section in the theme talk itself. That would take up precious time that I'm sure you're desperate to, f- desperate to fill. <laughs> but please remember that. So any thoughts or questions emerging at the end of this, jot them down, mull on them through the day and bring to the Hibbert room at 4.30. That's the space for that purpose. Okay. So I have to be there too, right? Afraid so. Afraid so. And I think you find I did say that on the email. Yes. <laughs> this then is the first of the long-awaited theme talks. This is the curtain raiser. <laughs> the tone... The tone setter. Will it be the standard bearer? We don't know. They will all be wonderful and it will be a pleasure to hand over to you in just a second. But I asked each of the speakers to give me just a little insight into them so that you've got a sense of who they are, even more than the profile that was given to you on your information pack, which, of course, you have read, learned, marked and inwardly digested. Um, So each of them said just something slightly extra. Rob is here this week, strangely well-rested, while his seven- and eight-year-olds have been with their other dad in Montana and Wyoming. Camping, hiking, whitewater rafting, riding horses and probably roping cattle as well. (laughs) He hopes that they come back next week at least partially worn out. (laughs) And my final word, as it will be each morning, is just a little refrain which I hope you might join in with if you know this. Monday's child, and you are today's Monday's child... Monday's child is, of course, fair <laughs> face. <Yeah. laughs> so let's, let's hear the person behind the face. Thank you, Rob. Well, it's a huge pleasure to be here. I'm really delighted. I feel like I know some of you already well, and I'm getting to know others of you. And, and to be uh, the Monday child, at least to be the curtain raiser, is a privilege and an honor, and I hope I do it justice. Um, Let's begin with lighting our chalice, settling into a bit of a mood and a time and a space together. These words are an old Inuit song from the Arctic. I think over again 
my small adventures, my fears, those small ones that seemed so big. For all of the vital things I had to get and to reach. And yet, there is only one great thing. To live and see the great day that dawns and the light that fills the world. It's good to be together today. Let's sing in this morning. I've, um, we seem to be on a tradition of a cappella round singing. Actually, this won't be a round, so you can relax a bit. I don't know about the a cappella. It's by Nick Page, who I hope some of you have heard of. He's a very talented Unitarian Universalist songwriter and song leader. And I learned this from him years ago. And I'll lead it for you. It just says if we change a few of the words, it's, it's pretty simple. You'll follow me. Would you give me the... I am not a professional singer, but I'm enthusiastic, so I hope you will be as well. Somebody sang for me, had me on their mind, took the time and sang for me. I'm so glad they sang, I'm so glad they sang. I'm so glad they sang for me. Will you join me? Somebody sang for me, had me on their mind, took the time and sang for me. I'm so glad they sang. I'm so glad they sang, I'm so glad they sang for me. One more time. Somebody sang for me, had me on their mind, took the time and sang for me. I'm so glad they sang, I'm so glad they sang, I'm so glad they sang for me. Pray. Somebody prayed for me, had me on their I'm so glad 
sit down more comfortable a little bit so I'm sure some of you know maybe is Amy right is your name Amy do you know what an icon is you ever heard of an icon before maybe not do you guys know what would you say an icon is if you had uh, icon <coughs> I think uh, well an icon is something famous that people might associate with something else. Oh, yeah, that is an icon. You're right, you're right. An icon, like an idol, almost like a sports icon. Yeah. Yeah. The original meaning of the word icon is actually a religious painting. And usually, in the Christian tradition and other traditions, it's of a person, like a great person that you might want to remember. And it would be up in a temple or a church. It would look a lot like this. I brought this from Russia. You might know that. That's St. George and the Dragon. And actually, it's a Christian icon. And they would have this in the Russian temp churches. And you'd look at it, and it would be a way of praying. You'd kind of think about it, and you'd kind of get lost in the picture. Some of you can see. I'll leave it up here later. And in Buddhist tradition, they have icons as well. So this is the Buddha, and you might meditate on this. I have this in my bedroom, and sometimes I just stare at it. It's also an icon. And then... They've taken the same idea and used it for modern-day heroes or saints. So this is, who knows who this is? Martin Luther King Jr., right. And this has been painted in the style of a Byzantine icon. And it's to remind us that the things that modern-day people do also are, are worthy of veneration, of, of thinking about and keeping in our hearts. And this is Harvey Milk. He's probably a little bit le less known, and he's led the gay rights struggle in the United States. So these are icons. 
But you know, you can also make your own icons. So at a workshop I went to a while ago, they had us make icons and I just drew this. And it's just something that I keep in my room and if I'm meditating or sometimes I just notice it when I wake up and it makes me think of that time and of kind of a restful night. Kind of a Van Gogh knockoff icon. <laughs> and then I thought, um, I wanted to give you guys something for you to remember summer camp um, by. And also I was thinking a lot about youth. So Meka, you might remember when I was at the youth talk last week, I said, you are the people that we pass this tradition on to. You guys are very important because if Unitarianism, this whole tradition of freedom and of compassion and of independent thinking and of being yourself, if this tradition doesn't have young people, it won't continue on. So I thought maybe one thing I could do is give you guys an icon of your own that would have at the center, you'll recognize that, our symbol, it's the chalice. So I have one for each of you. But I'm not going to give it to you right now because I thought one of the things we could do as a gift is I'll put this out in the hallway. There's a little table near the silent auction and I've got some colored pencils and a sharpener and I'm going to leave it out there for the week. I asked permission. And they said, I could leave this out for the week. And what I'm going to invite the adults to do, as part of our passing on this beautiful heritage to you, future Unitarians, I hope, is that I'm going to invite the adults just to take those colored pencils and draw something very small. You don't have to be a good drawer. It could be a, it could be a little word. It could be um, a star or a flower, anything you want, a peace sign. And at the end of the week, I think your icons, each one of these, individual, um, will have all kinds of images and you can take it home and put it up in your rooms and it will remind you of this, but also how we believe in you as being the future of this movement and that you, we pass this flame on to you and someday you might be in a group like this and you'll remember and you'll have this if you want to keep it for the rest of your lives, you can. I've had this since I was 20. Does that sound all right? What I'd like you to do is just um, choose one. Uh, find one that you like. And then put your names on it, on the back. Here's some colors. And then we'll know who to give them to. And if anyone has a special drawing they'd like to make for you. We just have to remember at the end of the week, remember to get them. And then you'll have your own Unitarian icons. I'll take the pencils when you're done. Thank you. I just want you to know how important you all are to us because you are the future. And if we do right by you, then we know that this flame won't go out. All right? You're welcome to stay, but I think you're also welcome to do something <laughs> more fun for you, I suspect. Thank you. Uh, just while the young people withdraw, um, can I let you all know, you don't have to make frantic notes if you don't want to. These talks are all being recorded, and they'll be available by the summer school website when they are, okay? Just so that you know that. All right. Excellent. Good.
I have two short readings before beginning the theme talk this morning. The first is by Alfred D'Souza. For a long time, it had seemed to me that life was about to begin, real life. But there's always some obstacle in the way, something to be got through first, some unfinished business, time still to be served, a debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last, it dawned on me that those obstacles were my life. And by Lillian Smith. I soon realized that no journey carries one far unless, as it extends into the world around us, it goes an equal distance into the world within. The title for my theme talk is Stranger in a Strange Land. You know the story. You've heard it before many times, I suspect. So just let me summarize. There is Naomi. There is Ruth. 2,300 years ago, or so scholars speculate, they, or their prototypes, walked the ancient Mideast. So the mother-in-law, Naomi... Naomi is an Israelite married to a man named Elimelech, and with him has two sons, Malon and Kilian. The two sons have a very rough go of it in this story, as you might recollect, and as you might expect, if you knew that their names translate roughly as sickness and wasting. A cautionary tale to take care of the names you give your children in case they decide to try and live up to them. Now in this story, famine comes to the land of the Israelites, and so, as happens across the ages, Naomi and Elimelech and their sons take off for greener pastures. They skirt the Israelite border authority, such as it was, to become undocumented workers in the land of Moab. Despite their dodgy papers and possible hard feelings of the native Moabites down at the local, they are able to survive and even able to marry their two sons off to native women, Ruth and Orpah. As Old Testament family stories go, this one is relatively easy to follow so far. It's just Naomi, her husband, two sons, and the Moabite women. But as foreshadowed by their names, sickness and wasting die in Moab, and soon after, so does their father, Elimelech. This is bad news for Naomi on many levels. She is now a widow, a stranger without the protection of males in a strictly patriarchal culture. So understandably, Naomi decides to go back to her own people. But it is also bad news for the two young widows, as you can imagine, who are now on their own with dead foreigners for husbands. The crisis point of the story occurs now when Naomi, the mother-in-law, tells the two women 
to go back to their own people, to leave her alone, take care of themselves. Orpah, tearfully, we are told, does this. But Ruth is less swayed. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth does accompany her foreign mother-in-law back to a strange country, or an equally strange turn of, where in an equally strange turn of events, she ends up marrying a close relative of Emmamelech, her former father-in-law, with some interesting bits happening on the threshing room floor, where she goes, you know this story, where she goes to, quote, lie at her husband's feet, which has an entirely different and very salacious meaning when told in ancient Hebrew. And the whole thing is formalized, we're told, by the handing over of a sandal from one male relative to the next. A good reminder that human beings are strange creatures, That if you think what young people get up to today is weird, you should see what they were doing in the 4th century BCE. I first heard the story of Ruth and Naomi, I suspect, as part of a wedding service. It's quite traditional in weddings to speak those words. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. That's often repeated as part of a couple's affirmation to each other that they will cleave to each other against all odds. It's held especially sacred by non-Jews who convert to Judaism as an example of chesed or loving kindness and also as a moment where loyalty and chesed are more powerful than customary law where someone from outside the tradition actually comes in and becomes part of the tradition. I invoke these two ancient women, these scriptural signposts to a deeper truth, because I think they have something to say to us about living life at the edge. There are, of course, many ways of illustrating this week's theme. We'll hear some of them. But I thought of, among other things, Ruth and her mother-in-law on the edge of disaster on their own women, long time ago, in a culture that was run mostly by men. And I thought also, and along similar lines, of the parents and families, and especially the mums, I've come into contact with in East London. At the after-school club, we run as part of the newish Unitarian Social Action program, Simple Gifts, which some of you have heard of, I'm sure. Generally speaking, most, if not all, of our families live far closer to the economic edge and also the cultural edge than most of us here do. Typically, our families live in two-room council flats, cramming two, sometimes three generations of adults in and two to five children, the same small space. In neighborhoods where they do not feel safe letting their kids out to play in the local park, and where they don't often have access to all the things my children enjoy, after school, clubs, football, dancing, piano. Our mostly Bangladeshi Muslim families also live on the cultural edge, 
They literally have a foot on the edge of two cultures. The one hearkens back to a hot, semi-tropical country, watered by great rivers, vibrant and industrious, ancient, but also bursting at the seams with massive population growth. Men and women, boys and girls, live lives governed in part by the past, by an ancient past, by deeply ingrained and often quite conservative Muslim faith, and equally ingrained patterns of patriarchy and family loyalty and ethnic identity. It is a past I know very little about. At the same time, the people that I know through simple gifts stand on another edge and navigate it quite well. An edge on the other side of the universe at times from what they knew in Bangladesh. The modern world of urban British life, they can navigate far better than I the concrete estates of East London, surrounded by KFC and Ladbrokes, and other women free, among other things, to wear things like hot pants and high heels instead of hijab or even niqab. They see for themselves and judge for themselves the good and bad effects of things like widely available alcohol compulsory education for boys and girls, and the rule of law, mostly. They are also surrounded, as we all are, by such a cacophony of ideas and philosophies and mass marketing as has never been heard or seen before in the history of the world. Life at the edge. I don't think you see it much more in evidence in the UK than on Tuesday afternoons standing behind the snack table at the after-school club in Bethnal Green. Now in this talk, I'm going to stop at various points to ask you questions. I was going to get up and move, but I'm not sure that's going to work so well. To help see us see in a general way what you might have experienced about life at the edge along some of the themes that I'll pick out. So here's my first question. If you agree completely, raise your hand as high as it will go. In fact, if you're bursting with agreement, you can raise both hands. <laughs> if you can't or won't agree with the statement, keep your hands down. If you have strong Unitarian feelings, you can fall to the floor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I'll leave the degree of theatricality totally up to you. So my first question. I have experienced life at the true economic edge. I know what it means to live with real extended economic hardship. If that is true for you or has been true, hands up. If it's not been true for you, hands down. I'll repeat it. I've experienced life at the true economic edge. I know what it means to live with real extended economic hardship. Hands up. Second question. I've learned something precious, for those of you who kept your hand up. I've learned something precious from living with less than most others around me have had. It's almost all the same people. The story, thank you. The story of Ruth and Naomi illustrates the theme of life lived on the cultural edge, also the economic edge about the changes that take place when one is forced or chooses to up sticks and live as a stranger in a strange land. 
It's always a risk to leave home and strike out for a new locale, whether that means leaving from uni, for uni from suburban Leeds to urban Cardiff or taking the long and treacherous road from the deserts of Moab to the highlands of Bethlehem. So my next question, raise your hand if you would, if you've lived for longer than, let's say, a year, longer than a year, more than 60 miles from where you were raised as a child. I know some of you have bumped around. <laughs> Nearly everyone. Let me, let me turn that around. Is there anyone who hasn't moved? You're young and you haven't moved. <laughs> for those of you who did raise your hand, did that move force you to make radical changes in how you related to culture, language, and tradition? Did that move somewhere more than 60 miles away force you to make radical changes to your culture, language? Raise your hand if it did. Okay, I would say maybe about half of us, half of that same group. So for those who didn't raise their hand this second time, was that first move within the UK? So you stayed within your general, you can just nod your general culture, right? Okay, let's try that question a different way now. Raise your hand if you agree to this statement. I have had to move far enough away and for long enough that I've had to switch cultures at least once in my life. I've had to learn how to blend in with a culture very different from the one I knew growing up. Would you raise your hand to that? All right. I wonder where some of you who have your hands raised have lived. You could just call it out. Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. South Africa, Zimbabwe. South Africa, Zimbabwe. India. 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 America. America. New Zealand. Brooklyn, did you say? Brooklyn. Yeah, Brooklyn. DC. DC. New Zealand. New York State. New York State. So a number of uh, Americans, yeah? Malta. Malta. Has anyone moved within the UK and had to make that fast cultural switch? Very small, intimate village to large city. Oh, That's a huge difference. Yeah. England, Scotland as a teenager. England, Scotland as a teen, yeah. yeah. London to Somerset. Yes, yeah, the opposite. Northeast of London. Northeast of London, yeah. Well, in the modern West, we've become quite used to a life of movement, obviously of going from where we're known and where we understand the local rules to a new land where we have to adapt to new customs, languages, and especially unwritten norms. It hasn't always been so in some parts of the world, including the UK until relatively recently, in history anyway. Families tended to remain localized, didn't they? Rarely moving far from a particular region or area, sometimes staying in the same valley for generations. I think it's fair to say this has been less true in my own country of origin, the United States. For example, just from my own family story, from the time my father's family, the Gregsons, sailed across the Atlantic in the early 1840s, every generation since then has lived in a different state, gradually making their way across the vast continent until they reached the Pacific Northwest and literally could go no further. And yet, myself, in only one generation, I've reversed that entire voyage. What took them 160 years to accomplish, returning to the country they were so eager to escape from, 
that to this day there is no family record or even vague memory of where they came from, whether it was Ireland, Scotland, or England. When I asked my grandfather, how can there be no written record? How can no one have remembered? It wasn't that long ago, 160 years. He would always say that he guessed it must have been bad enough back then, in the old days, that they didn't waste any time thinking back on it. They just wanted to start a new life elsewhere. Yet lest we imagine that modern life has forced a less rooted, more hypermobile lifestyle, right? It takes a village, and wouldn't it be nice to go back to that? Recall that for most of human history, our ancestors were anything but settled and rooted. The story of the Israelites moving to Moab was very, very common. And certainly going further back, we were expert movers, hunting and gathering for hundreds of thousands of years. Just in terms of our evolutionary story, we are a small segment compared to that vast beginning. They moved from our earliest beginnings in East Africa, across North Africa, through the Mideast, and on to the ends of the earth. They colonized on foot such remote outposts as the Arctic, the Tibetan Plateau, and Trowbridge, even, Macclesfield, (laughs) which really does prove, doesn't it, the existence of a gene that pushes us to the edge of beyond. I told you I would do. In fact, our ancestors moved mostly out of need. And interestingly, or some anthropologists speculate in part because of the way we caught food. I'd never heard this. This is Admittedly, a bit of a diversion, but I think it's fascinating, so you'll have to stay with me for a bit longer. Hunter-gathering groups, even ones in existence today in the Kalahari Desert, for example, in South Africa, engage in a unique kind of hunting called persistence hunting in which our bodies become the weapon. It turns out that we humans possess the ability to chase down our prey until it collapses. As incredible as it sounds... Even today, the Kalahari people will chase large game like antelope for two to five hours, over 25 to 35 kilometers at a stretch, sometimes in weather getting up to 40 degrees. They can do this for two reasons. A, because they're in much better shape than any of us here are. (laughs) They rarely lump about in cars to get to work and back. And B... Humans in general use less energy to increase speed than animals, and we sweat, which means we can keep cool while animals normally must rest and drink water to cool down. So our very human propensity to up sticks, to strike out for the edge of our known world, may have some of its beginnings in our two million-year-old ability to eat quite literally on the hoof. Well, perhaps following that same primordial urge, but disguised as a job change, I up sticks three years ago, following my then partner, for a new job and a new life here in the UK. A month or two before leaving our home in New Jersey, a ministerial colleague, another American, handed me a paperback book as a going away present. This might come in handy, she said with a wry smile. My husband is English. And this has helped me decipher some of the things that most puzzled me when we went to visit the in-laws in Norwich. (laughs) The book is called Watching the English, 
The Hidden Rules of English Behavior. It is excellent. On its cover, I wish I had it, is a photo of two stoic people, presumably ticket holders, and they're sitting in stands in some unknown stadium somewhere outside, surrounded by empty, a sea of empty seats. They're reading the Daily Telegraph together under a massive umbrella in the rain, waiting patiently. Written by Cambridge University anthropologist Kate Fox, herself an Englishwoman, watching the English proved both highly entertaining, but also a good reminder to me as I went back to it during my first months and even year here in the UK, that in fact I was a stranger in a strange land, not unlike those of you who've done the opposite, gone to the States. It made those odd moments of cultural dissonance where you just didn't understand what was happening, more understandable, if not necessarily easier. Like the time I met the man with the push stroller halfway down a sidewalk, sorry, pavement, which was, <laughs> which was blocked in the middle by a construction site, so it became quite narrow. We, we kind of met in a funny way, so we couldn't see each other coming, and so we had to make kind of a snap decision. Right away, the man looked up, gave me a bright smile, and said, cheers. If anything, I felt even more befuddled by his reading <laughs> than by the moment itself. I had no idea what that meant. Was it a secret signal that I was to squeeze past him? Was he cheered by the thought that I would probably let him go since he had the child? It was an awkward situation to begin with, and we both fumbled about for a while until I think I finally let him pass, entirely unsure whether or not I had done the right thing, and I recall him being somewhat shamefaced as he squeezed past me, but that could just be recollection. Well, reading Kate Fox helped. She suggested that in an awkward social situation such as this one, where there was no clear course of action, this British dad did what he knew. He wanted to reassure me that everything would turn out all right in the end. And as a way of decreasing social tension, the dad with the stroller decided something cheery and seemingly helpful was in order. Though in fact, as an outsider, I would have understood cheers in a pub as a toast, but absolutely had no clue what it meant in a blocked intersection. I told this story, by the way, just a few months ago to a friend who, who volunteers at Simple Gifts, a Brit. And, and he said to me, as if this would help clear things up, but, you know, cheers isn't even an English expression, it's Australian. <laughs> to which I said, typical. <laughs> Watching the English makes a compelling case that like the Japanese, but unlike the Americans... The English place a very high value on privacy, privacy. Where I was raised to bring the stranger into one's social circle, even or perhaps especially in public situations, so they don't feel left out, you bring them in. Following English cultural norms, it is acceptable and sometimes preferable to give a stranger or even, and I've heard this from many of you, a next door neighbor you've known for years, their privacy their space. For another example, for the first two months of having moved to the UK, I wondered why it was that when I was walking through my somewhat posh neighborhood in North London with two adorable small children on either hand, 
None of my neighbors, and I mean none, and I saw these people for months, ever said hi to me by speaking through them, if you know what I mean. So saying, oh, what adorable children you have, or what are their names, or I see you three been around here for a while. No one said a word. Now, some of you I know are saying to yourselves, well, that's just posh North London. If you were in Trowbridge or Macclesfield, we don't get many newcomers here. So you'd have been welcomed in right away. And perhaps you'd be right. What, could have, what would have really helped me, however, would have some, was if someone had explained to me about how to talk about the weather. <laughs> This is so important, it turns out, that the very first chapter on watching the English is called Weather Talk. Fox writes, any discussion of English conversation, like any English conversation, must begin with the weather. Let me point out that Dr. Johnson's famous comment that when two Englishmen meet, their first talk is of the weather, is as accurate an observation now as when it was made over 200 years ago. What I did not know when I first moved here, but was soon to learn, was that this fascination with the weather is only partly, and not most importantly, due to the admittedly changeable nature of weather on a small small island on the edge of the North Sea. English weather speak, the author notes, is a form of code, evolved to help us overcome our natural reserve and actually talk to each other. Everyone knows, for example, that... Nice day, isn't it? Or, ooh, isn't it cold? (laughs) Or, still raining, eh? (laughs) And other variations on the theme are not requests for meteorological data. (laughs) They are ritual greetings, conversation starters, or default fillers. And, of course, we have this in the States, but I think you've taken it to a level of (laughs) beauty and elegance. And there is more. Not only is it helpful to know that weather talk is an excellent way of breaking social silence, you also have to master the rule that to disagree about the weather is considered a serious breach of etiquette. (laughs) The author goes on, When the priest says, Lord, have mercy upon us, you do not respond, Well, actually, why should he? You intone dutifully, Christ, have mercy on us. In the same way, It would be very rude to respond to, ooh, isn't it cold, with no, actually, it's quite mild. (laughs) Nobody will tell you that there is a rule about this. They are not even conscious of following a rule. It simply isn't done. Such small tricks are helpful to know as an outsider. With them, you begin to crack the code. You begin finding those small, critical ways of fitting in as an adopted member of the clan. You think you become a Ruth moving to a new land and you begin to make sense of it. And when you learn as an outsider about the importance of privacy, and so the author asserts the almost instinctive British social uncertainty, then I could stop worrying that my neighbors thought my children the most hideous things they had ever seen or that the man pushing the stroller was about to offer me a drink. (laughs) They were simply following the rules of the road. They were doing what they knew best to make sense of space. So just for fun, I wonder if anyone here has had a similar experience of cultural disconnect whilst 
traveling or living abroad, and I've, enough of you have lived elsewhere, perhaps in the land of the really quite friendly Americans, <laughs> that you wouldn't mind sharing. Has that brought up any memories of a similar moment? I see a nod. Okay, go ahead, Sarah. I had a great one. I went to stay with a friend in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, and she invited people around for a party. And I was there in the kitchen with complete strangers who were saying, yeah, I've had, had a problem with drink, you know, and I've been... <laughs> <laughs> These intimate sharings with complete strangers. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Yeah. It's yeah. your face. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. Actually, it's not. It's with another family with a, in this country. In my family, if I speak, people wait and listen to the end. In... With my in-laws, everyone speaks at once. Yeah. When I first went there, I was like, uh, uh, I'm a, uh, <laughs> and I just got used to it. And just no. <laughs> of course, there are these rules within families. I'm making this very simplistic, partly for fun, but um, there are in in rules and codes everywhere. Any anyone else got a good one? Yeah. Well, when I went to Star Island a couple of years ago LRE conference, I was the solitary Brit, and everybody was so friendly, and it didn't dawn on me till about halfway through the week that although part of it was famed American friendliness, part of it was that they just loved hearing my cute accent. <laughs> <laughs> we do, yes. Yeah. I, I, I have one in reverse, kind of in reverse, because I lived in, um, in New York for 13 years, yeah. and and I, I kind of made the assumption that England would be exactly the same when I went back, and that, that I hadn't changed, that English hadn't changed, and that, you know, and it would, you know, I didn't think, and it wasn't until I actually moved back, came back to, to here, that it was actually the English that um, I, found I struggled most with, mm. the, the things that you're, that you're describing, mm. and because without realising it, what had happened, I think I'd been exposed to this in New York, there's this, this, this wonderful kind of civil respect exists where on the subway and on the underground system, people give space. And in the supermarket, people allow you space. And they wouldn't hmm. dream about bumping into your supermarket tro- uh, trolley without being very apologetic. So when I came back to England, you know, getting bashed and bumped around hmm. and knocked into and nobody saying sorry or anything, it was hmm. like really... Uh, it was kind of like, ooh, and it felt really rude. And it was the kind of... Because, you know, as an English person, you expect them to be rude and brash in, in America. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially New York. I wonder where you exactly. were. Exactly. But, yeah. but there was this, without realising, without knowing it, that there was this underlying civil respect, which seemed, when I came back here, I seemed to sort of notice an absence of. And ah. So it was a ah. kind of reverse. And in fact, England had moved on in my absence. Yeah. One last one. Yeah. I sort of second what uh, everything that, that Steve said. I lived in, in Washington, D.C. for eight years as well. And uh, when I came back to England, I just felt like it was such a savage country. Huh. <laughs> it was a country of, you know, where people are reserved and respectful. Huh. And America so immensely civilised and huh. extremely polite. I did find it very difficult that whenever I said the word water, people would walk away from me. And I had to learn to say water. Water, <laughs> water, water. <laughs> nobody would possibly, I mean, people would walk away from me in stores when I would say, do you think I could have, especially do you think I could have a bottle of water? Yeah. 
Well, I have, I have a short story that's the opposite of your opposite. Um, when, when I had been in the UK about a year, I went back to Colorado for Christmas time and was a little amused and also slightly annoyed when I, I told some of you this story. I just went to one of these giant Target stores with like literally 20 checkout areas. And I, all I had was a Diet Pepsi and a thing of gum. And I went up and there was a nice young lady at uh, the checkout stand who tried to start a, converse, a full-on conversation with me with a, so how are you doing today? Everything going all right? You find everything? I literally, I just wanted this. <laughs> I just, I'm ready to go now. And um, I don't really know you. So, uh, so I had already begun the process of acculturation. Mostly we don't actually want to live too long at the edge, I think. Most of us are dying to get into the middle. We're dying to find our way in. And we work hard to pick up the rules to figure out how to do that. Sometimes, though, the rituals involved are so foreign and rub up against our default habits in such irritating ways that we never get used to them. I spent my junior year year of university uh, studying abroad in Dakar in Senegal in West Africa. And in that part of the world, it's a very ritualized, I think, compared to American culture. At least the rituals were so different, I noticed every single one of them. When you enter um, a room in that part of the world, you always say, as soon as you enter, no matter who's there, Salam Alaikum, which is an Islamic Muslim greeting, peace be with you. And everyone tr- turns around and intones back, Malikum Salam, uh, peace also with you. It's quite nice. But among the Wolof people, which is the dominant ethnic culture in most of Senegal, the greeting becomes far more complicated. So once you've done that, you go up to each individual, and if it's the usual thing, you say things like, Anawasafar, which means, how is your husband? Even if you don't know if they have it, you kind of make assumptions. How is, and then, Anawasakar, how are your children? Anawasa, and you go on, it goes on, how is your house? How are your children? How are your grandparents? How is work? Um, now, this all sounds sort of on paper, caring and thoughtful, and it is. It's a, it, stop, you know, it slows everything way, way down. But for us, for young Americans studying abroad, it became the source of bitter, bitter complaint. For example, when I faced having to go through that same ritual every time I left my house and thought about buying something from the woman at the front who sold peanuts. That's all she did. She had a big thing of peanuts. She sold peanuts. Um, and you know, you saw her yesterday, and you saw her the day before, and you know you'll see her for eight months every single day. It becomes an incredibly tiresome chore for me. And yet I'd witnessed Senegalese. They just did it as a matter of course. It was just the thing you did. Um, and I couldn't stand it. I actually went a different way to get around because I found it... it there's no re- it's subjective, isn't it? It's not, not one way or the other is better. It just became difficult. Um, living at the edge of culture sometimes irritates as much as it illuminates. It's not always this great magic moment of sharing. There are ways to learn what it is you're meant to do. Quite literally, there are signs... I'm moving to London. It took me three days of happy rush hour driving to realize that the blue signs with the picture of the bus and the taxi and sometimes the motorcycle and hours of operation, those mean something. They mean that the lane that you're in is not meant for you during those hours of operation. And that's why no one else is there. The signs were there. I just didn't know what they meant. 
nor did I bother for three glorious days of school driving and pick-up freedom to figure them out. And when I got my 130-pound CCTV ticket in the mail, I promptly wrote back, explaining, trying to make my letter somewhat humorous, but also saying, I just moved, I didn't know, I, re- I did finally figure it out, blah, 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 and I received a very kind, very bland note back from local council explaining they did not care. <laughs> I read the signs. Now I know, maybe I've taken the cheap way out in this talk. I've meandered far from the story of Ruth and Naomi to show some of the humorous lessons of being a stranger in a strange land. But I want to return to their story a bit here nearer the end because there are deeper and some more poignant lessons to be gained from their experience and our own. We have all of us crossed borderlands, haven't we? into a country we've either never given much thought to before or we've been dragged kicking and screaming and dumped quite forlorn on the other side of the border. Crossing over that invisible dividing line means relearning rules that you knew quite well already, thank you very much. Whether you liked them or not, you knew them. You knew how to get around. But when your partner dies or you move away from the flat you've lived in for 15 years, when your body changes so much you no longer recognize yourself, or your easygoing 8-year-old transforms into a rather less easygoing 13-year-old, you have entered a kind of strange new country. You have to start learning its ways anew. I am single again at age 45 after 16 years of marriage. I can tell you, I have next to no idea how dating happens when older, with children in the house, and a body that has gone from somewhat de rigueur to entirely passé in the space (laughs) of 20 years. It feels strange on so many levels. It's hardly where I expected to be at this time of my life. But then again, as Lillian Smith says in the beginning, you never do expect to be where you are, do you? I wonder if you'd be willing in a final bout of public sharing, since I have the chair, to turn to someone near you and speak of a more personal time when you have found yourself a stranger in a strange land. I'm thinking change of job, perhaps, change of house, children moved on, divorce, illness, new spouse. You decide how deep you want to take that, how personal to make it. I don't want you to go into too much detail but share enough so the person next to you gets a sense of where you came from and where you ended up. And maybe it's something very fresh that's happening right now. That's fine, too. Um, I would say just a minute for each of you to share, and I'll make a noise up here. And, and if you're next to a spouse or your best friend, maybe find someone else who's neither of those things. So let's just take a moment and share crossing over time. Shall we?
let's just just make it a little bit short. I mean, I Well, yeah, yeah. Mine, no, mine is Um, thank you. I, th as always, maybe you can keep this conversation going over lunch or something. But the, my, the more important question, in a way, that's interesting and important, but the more important question I want you to share, and maybe you already have, but if you haven't, how did you manage or how are you managing to go from being a stranger in a strange land to a resident or at least someone able to get around? And that's, I'd like you to also take a minute each if you would. How did you manage or how are you managing that shift from being Ruth, from Moab to being Ruth in her own land? So, talk. <laughs> <laughs>
to start. I'm going to ask you to stop, please. We'll bring it back. Ping. Ding. Thank you very much. I know that's only a taste, a very cursory, maybe even unsatisfying sharing. Stranger to stranger is some intimate part of your life story. It's not to put you on the spot or even really to prove a point. I wanted to help us realize together once again one of the primary reasons we do religious community in the first place. We are all Ruth and we are all Naomi. We are Orpah too, sometimes, weeping and returning to what we know but not sure it's the best decision. Certainly not the one that will go down in the history books as heroic or especially praiseworthy, but we have all those pieces in us. And when you as a stranger walk into a Unitarian chapel for the first time, chances are you are feeling very much the foreigner as well. Yet the spiritual search so many people are on is so important. We forget that sometimes, don't we? It is so important, it is so nagging and compelling that we will even show up unannounced in a strange building, often set way back from the street with lousy parking, (laughs) with people we don't know doing strange things, because we hope that we might one day with guidance and a bit of luck be found and find ourselves. It is an act of immense courage. And I think those of us who are comfortable in our own chapels or communities, those of us who stand behind the door, the ones in the know, we often forget. We had better start thinking or be thinking about the fragility and the courage of those undocumented spiritual immigrants who tentatively, hopefully, find themselves at our gates. They've passed Many obstacles just to get there. We had better have something to say to them. We had better have figured out why we are there and what we have to offer besides tea and company and a roof that no longer leaks. Because these migrants to our shores want more than that. Their lives are at risk their spiritual selves, as well as sometimes the blood flowing through their veins. I was taught a very important thing at Divinity School in the course on preaching by two very wise ministers. They told us, you need to make sure that you say something in your sermon every Sunday that will offer hope to a person who that week has contemplated taking his or her own life. If your sermon does not have that thing in it, if it does not have that saving word, then you need to go back and see that it does. Because sometimes, more often than you will ever know, in fact, what we do on church in church on Sunday is that important. It may be the one act of true hospitality, of opening up the gate and letting in that the person who desperately needs it the most will experience all week long. I always remember that when I'm writing a sermon. I know it's a struggle sometimes for us to reach modern people outside our small chapels. Because in fact, aren't we also strangers now in a strange land? 
not because we are dissenters or because we move outside the mainstream, but because most people don't see why they should care. We have the chance to cross over into a new country, to take that strangeness that we have in our own land now and move across the boundary to reach those people who may not see why they should care, but they do. And we know they do. We will certainly have to leave part of what we've always done behind, as every generation does. We'll have to learn new customs. We'll have to speak a new language. We'll have to sing some new songs. We'll have to host people we've never hosted before if we want to make this journey. But if you are concerned we don't know what to do, we don't know quite how to get there, or everything we've tried to date has more or less failed us, Take comfort in this. The signs are always there. They are. You might not recognize them. You might not know what they mean at first. You may have seen them a million times and still sped on by. But I will tell you, you've probably been told by three different people already this year what it would take to entice them back, what they need to make the journey in. What they are seeking in their hearts is they muddle their way through this modern life. You might have to ask around. You may simply not like what it would take to be a stranger again, to make that journey, to be a Ruth instead of an Orpa. Orpa was no villain. She probably lived out her days in some amount of peace. Though she did not go down in history as a shining example of human living at the edge. And I think that's what Unitarianism always calls us to do. We need to be Ruths. We can have our Orpas, but we need to make that journey once again that our ancestors made and that our, the people that follow behind will make as well. So may we Unitarians together take up this new mantle of strangeness once again, crossing the borderlands of what we know, and being willing to accompany the Holy One, the person who needs us so badly, into a new and terrifying, but also enlivening, emboldening, and encouraging land. It's good to be on this journey together. Amen. Thus ends the first talk. (laughs) 